In my early 20s, when I first got really interested in Judaism, and I thought, maybe I'll go to high holiday services this year, or maybe I'll even fast on Yom Kippur. A few friends who got wind of what I was thinking about, of these crazy new ideas of mine, started giving me books or sending me links to articles on the web. And they all sort of had this theme. How do you prepare for the days of awe? They gave me books like Alan Liu's legendary treatise, This is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared. And I would read these things and I would expect that that the weeks leading up to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur would be these profoundly transformational weeks where I would be in deep meditation all the time, where I'd forget to eat because I would be thinking so deeply about what Rosh Hashanah was going to mean to me. And then when Rosh Hashanah came, the next week would just be this blur. I wouldn't even remember the days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur because I would be so deep into my mindfulness and my meditation and my apologies and my teshuva and my outreach. Friends, nothing like that has ever happened for me. In fact, in those early years, all I could think about was how hungry I was going to be on Yom Kippur and whether I was really man enough, person enough, human enough, grown up enough, Jew enough to do it. And then before I knew it, I was married and I had children and I was involved in leading the children's services at my neighborhood synagogue. And every year since, for the past 15 years, all I can think about is all the work I'm going to have to do for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And when the two days of Rosh Hashanah are over, I heave this sigh of relief and the trepidation begins. And when the fast of Yom Kippur is over, I think, oh, thank God. Tomorrow I can take my kids outside. We can begin to put up a sukkah in the beautiful fall air. And finally, we can breathe again and have some fun. In short, while I wouldn't say that I hate Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, because I don't, I love that they come round. I think of them a little bit like my own wedding or my children's benot mitzvah, their bat mitzvahs, which is profound events that in a million years I wouldn't miss, but that also scare me in the run-up, that have so much to them, so much planning, and so much can go wrong. And when they're over, it's the memory of having done them that I cherish rather than the stress of the moment. I think maybe I'm a terrible Jew. I think all those books were written for someone else. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, and this is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm joined today, as ever, by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And Tablet Editor-at-Large Liel Leibowitz. Hello to you. Today is our annual Apologies episode, and we're bringing you four stories of repentance, of teshuva, of turning, of apologizing, of exactly the things that I think I forget to do every single year. We're bringing you a story about the goats in Riverside Park and how scapegoats fit into Yom Kippur. We're telling you how to do teshuva right, according to someone who kind of knew, Maimonides. We're bringing you a story about the Confederate flag. And for Tzom Gedalia, the honorary holiday of unorthodox, we're connecting with people whom we disagree with, perhaps the hardest of all things to do. But before we get to any of that, I want to ask my cherished co-hosts if they (laughs) have as much difficulty really sinking into the season of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as I do. I hope not. I hope somebody here is a role model for you for how to do it better. Stephanie Butnick, is that you? Are you that Jew? I am not. And I do feel relief, Ah. honestly. Yeah, we're saving Liel for the end to redeem us, so to speak. But, you know, 
I've talked about this before, but as a Jewish professional, I think those who work at federations, at JCCs, at synagogues, I think they will understand what I'm saying. But like, there's a lot that goes into the lead up to these holidays, right? Like, there's a lot that has to get done before like the office closes down on these holidays. There's programming, there's content, there's all sorts of things that have to sort of get closed up and buttoned up. And then when the holidays themselves come, it's always confusing to me because I'm like, wait, I've done all the work, not the spiritual work, right? But I've done sort of like the logistical work to get to this, these holidays. These are the days that we've sort of been planning for, not at all spiritually, just like tactically and logistically and strategically. And then they hit and you're like, oh, I'm actually supposed to experience them as a human now, as opposed to a professional. Stephanie Botnick, do you get in any spiritual work on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur? Do you ever have a moment? Yes, I do. But I, it hits me every year. And it surprises me every year that I'm just like, oh, oh my God, the holiday's here. I think about these days as like news pegs almost. And then when they they actually roll around, right, and I wake up on Rosh Hashanah, it's like, oh my God, it's here. It's not just the, a thing that I prepare for and is, is over. And so honestly, like I struggle with finding that time to then be spiritually engaged on these days. It's almost like despite yourself, it comes around and knocks you for a loop. Yeah. Leah Leibowitz, could you redeem us, please? Look, I could try. I'm a little bit peckish because it is Tom Gedalia and I've been fasting already for three hours now. This is this is one of the morning to evening fasts. This is a starter fast, a junior varsity fast. It's it's really a cleanse as Gwyneth Paltrow celebrating her 50th <laughs> birthday. I believe today on Tom Gedalia would have it. Tom Gwynalia. I am an Elul junkie. There's nothing in our tradition that I love more deeply and dearly than this month leading up to the high holidays in which you're supposed to do a month-long process of soul-searching. And the most amazing thing, I think really the most astonishing thing in all of Judaism is that the religion that tells you exactly how many cubits you're allowed to carry your chicken under some circumstances leaves this entire business of a month-long spiritual cleanse with no instructions. And I want to share a story that the more I think about, the more I think is really indicative of how we're supposed to do it. It's a story of my own spiritual journey, by which I mean the story of a journey to try to find a cup of coffee in Italy in the middle of the night. Because some years ago, or two kids ago, Lisa and I were in Italy for a friend's wedding. And because we couldn't be bothered with trivialities like, you know, hotel checkout times or travel itineraries, we had to embark on a night-long journey from the heel of the boot all the way up north to Tuscany. And at some point, maybe around 2 or 3 a.m., I started feeling that if I did not receive a cup of espresso right now, very bad things would happen. And so we started darting on and off the highway looking for coffee. And we went to, you know, small towns and big towns and up, down and all around. At some point, I seriously contemplated knocking in the first door I saw and offering some poor soul, you know, $100 or two minutes with the macchiato machine. But eventually we saw it. The small roadside diners open and we stopped by and ordered two cups of espresso. And it was exactly like the Milanese would say, like an angel pissing on your tongue. It was delightful. It was the best brew you've ever had. If, if, the, if the barista was one of those, you know, doughy-eyed angels by Raffaelli, like, I would not have been surprised. And so we get into the car uh, and now I'm caffeinated and in full asshole mode. And all I do is rant to poor Lisa, who's trying to sleep because it's four in the morning. 
And I say, like, why can't I get great coffee like that back home? I mean, if this is the I-95, all I would get is, like, you know, it's just Dunkin' Donuts, so mediocre. And Lisa just opened one eye and said, yeah, but there would be one open every six miles. And the profundity of this idea really hit me because, you know, if you want the kind of country where, where goods and people and ideas could run all night, you don't want the perfect cup of espresso every 300 miles. You want the perfectly acceptable, mediocre, shitty brew every five miles. You want mediocrity. You want to do your best. You know, the, the U.S. Army's recruitment slogan wasn't be the absolute perfect person. It was just be all you could be. And this to me is the message of Alul. It's embracing this mediocrity. And it's so great that it doesn't come with instructions because it, all it says to you, all I want from you this year is to be a slightly better version of you. Not the perfect Jew, not the person who could keep all the mitzvot because that's impossible anyway you try it. Just, just a little bit better at the things that you know you kind of suck at and can improve. There's nothing more intimate and personal and, and freeing and liberating in this way, especially because, I mean, look, if you think about this, how crazy is this that the Day of Atonement comes after the so-called New Year? Would it make more sense to, like, atone first and then start the year anew? Judaism tells us exactly the opposite. It's like, listen, first we beg the king for a new slate, a new page, a new forgiveness. And then we focus on, on beginning to redeem ourselves. When we ask for forgiveness on Yom Kippur, it's for all the sins that we're going to do from this year until the next year. This is what we say in the Kol Nidre prayer, like from Yom Kippurim Zeh Ad Yom Kippurim Abba. We know in advance that we're going to mess it up, but that's okay because we're going to fail just a little bit better. Of course, today, if you had that drive with Lisa, she would say, right, but in Italy, you can't stop at the Judy Bloom rest stop, the James Gandolfini rest stop, or the John Bon Jovi rest stop, Jovi, which- <laughs> as you can on the Garden State Parkway. And as I recently did, I mean, who who are they naming them after there? Garibaldi? That's right. uh, Zeffirelli? I mean, that, that's, that's these pitchers. Leal, I think that's very profound. And, but it also speaks to the different kinds of Jews that one can be, because I did have a moment, like you, like Stephanie, I do get gobsmacked when I don't expect it. And I do have a moment on Rosh Hashanah every year or Yom Kippur. And I was reminded that I always had this moment because I was talking to my daughter, Rebecca, who is um, a high school junior and a very a deep soul and was not going to be with us for the high holidays this year because of, of her, her delightful travels and, and studies. And she said, Dad, you know what, I'm, what I miss when I'm not at our shul for the high holidays is I miss the moment in one of the evening services. She was talking about Rosh Hashanah, era of Rosh Hashanah, the first evening service, which we often go to, but same with Kol Nidre. She said, at night when one of the evening services lets out and all the hundreds of people spill into the lobby. And she said, and I see these people whom I haven't seen for a year or so, maybe because they haven't come or we've come on different weekends or I've been away, they've been away. And some of these people are people who have known me since I was a baby. And some of their names I remember and some I don't, but I love seeing them. They remind me of where I come from. They remind me of who I am. They remind me that, you know, of the, the ongoingness of everything. And she said, when you see them this year, would you just get a little gossip from each of them? Like the people I don't know, the people who are always pinching my cheeks when I was little, the people who now give me hugs and tell me I look so grown up, but I can't quite remember their names. Say hi to some of them, find out what they're up to and like come back to me with some gossip from the the greater mishpocha, the greater community. She said, that's what I miss about this time every year and I'm going to miss it. 
And I said, yeah, yeah, I totally, and I knew what she meant. There's something about that nighttime walk home as you spill out of shul with a hundred or 200 other people into the crisp fall air and you're back, the family's back together again, at least for, for a week or so. And, um, that's what gets me. And I wish, I wish some version of that interior, exterior with just one other person or with a whole neighborhood to everyone in real life or virtual, uh, however you can find it to everyone in the wider J crew. And we're here to help. And friends, we're here to help. However you take your annual dose of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur rejuvenation or enlightenment, whether through synagogue, whether through walks in the park, whether through long overnight drives north in Italy with stops for espresso at two in the morning, we're here to help. And we're going to start by taking a look at, of course, the goat. Now, as some of you know, the goat figures prominently in the Yom Kippur story, in the question in Judaism of how we get atonement in Torah. Uh, there is the idea of the scapegoat, the goat who takes our sins and then gets sent off into the desert with them to take them far away from us. And then, of course, for those who live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, goats are a relatively prominent feature of life. And it turns out that these two goats, the scapegoat of Torah and the goat of Upper Manhattan, are interconnected. Stephanie Butnick tells us how. There's this thing that happens every summer in New York City. Goats are brought to Riverside Park on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I know what you're thinking, because I had the same question. What on earth are goats doing in New York City? I'm going to tell you, but first, I'm going to meet the goats. Look at this beautiful goat. I've actually never seen a goat before, have you? Their names are Skittles, Eleanor, Cheech, and Big G, and they are extremely cool goats. They're also a very real way to connect to the story of the biblical scapegoat on Yom Kippur. But first, these goats in Riverside Park, what are they doing there besides being a convenient narrative device for Jewish podcasters? To explain this, I turn to Daniel Gorodnik, the director of the New York City Department of City Planning. Before that, though, he ran the Riverside Park Conservancy, the organization charged with keeping the park beautiful. There's an area in Riverside Park, particularly between 119th and 123rd Street, which is a really difficult area for human gardeners to access. It has very steep slopes. It's covered with poison ivy. And when we were thinking about how to clear this area, we thought, well, if it's too tough for our human gardeners, well, we should bring in some special gardeners. Goats were the answer to our problem. And so these goats come in and they stay for the summer and sort of what do they do? Oh, they eat. They eat. They eat everything. I mean, putting the goats in there is like treating them to an all-you-can-eat buffet. They eat the poison ivy. They eat the mugwort, the porcelain berry. They take care of all of that. And then, of course, when it comes out in the other department, in the other end, uh, it leaves some rich nutrients for the soil. So it's kind of a win all around. And they're also extremely popular, right? People love the goats. People go crazy for the goats. I'm here to see the goats. The goats are like really cool animals. And I think it's just a great thing that they're doing. I want to be a goat. Goats are majestic. They're pretty. The New York Observer called the Riverside Park goat enclosure one of the best first date spots in New York City the summer that we introduced it. People come there for peace and tranquility. They walk their dogs there. They have relationships with the goats. They talk to the goats. 
We see people like sharing stories with the goats. It's really remarkable. I mean, I guess it's kind of an oddity that you would see goats wandering around the Upper West Side of Manhattan in 2022, but they have been the source of great fascination and great excitement for people, and we love to see it. When I visited the goats, there were lots of people who were there to see them, and also some people who just happened to be walking down Riverside Drive and realized there were goats, goats, just across the fence. It was one of those very cute and quirky New York City moments. I asked Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski of nearby Anshe Chesed to meet me and the goats in Riverside Park. Deep in the wilds of Riverside Park, you can sometimes forget you're in this big urban area and, and you're living here among all of God's creatures. I wanted Rabbi Kalmanowski to remind us where the concept of the scapegoat comes from and why it's associated with Yom Kippur. The act of confession on an animal was very, very central in Bible times. It's, it's maybe hard for us in modern people to relate to how the ancient worship in the temple times was really lots and lots of different modes that included animals and vegetables. There was sights, there was sounds. It was incredibly, it was incredibly bloody, presumably, although the rabbis say that there was no bad smells, uh, that's just not possible, right? It must have been a sensory experience that was very, very wide ranging. And one of the things that happened is when one brought an animal to, to sacrifice, in some cases it might be a goat, in some cases it might be a cow, uh, the person who brought the sacrifice put, put their hands on the animal and pressed down uh, putting some weight on the animal, and they confessed what it was that they had to confess. They identified themselves with the animal. And it might be strange for modern people to think about this, but I think, and I'm following here some of the great medieval commentators who I, who I think just intuitively had this, particularly Nachmanides from the 13th century in Spain, that that was an act of identifying with the animal. You pressed down on the animal with your hands, and then the animal was slaughtered. And really it was a, a kind of a identification that you're really offering yourself, right? If you press down on the animal's head and say what you have to say, you are transferring yourself to the animal. And on Yom Kippur in the ancient temple, that was most intensely done when the high priest would first on a bull that represented his own sacrifice, but then ultimately on the head of a goat, confess the sins of all the people. And the goat absorbed, that's how they, they thought of it, the goat absorbed the guilt of the people. And, and here's the important part, there were two goats, one of which was sacrificed, and one of which was sent away. And it was an act of, you might call this a kind of sympathetic magic or something like that, but it was a transference of all of the difficult, ugly, failing, all, all the things that people had to get rid of in their mindset, in their religious universe, that was an effective act that carried it away into the desert and enabled them to begin anew. All this got me feeling pretty bad for the goats. Even when they're not being slaughtered for Yom Kippur, they're sort of being maligned. Just think of the word scapegoat. But Kalmanowski offered some perspective. The goat kind of gets a bad rap. Scapegoat is a word we use all the time. And like, here we are looking at these goats. They're literally eating all this poisonous brush and clearing this, this really, really steep field. They're doing this really beautiful job. And have they, it sort of seems like they've done this forever for us. Yeah, we, we say scapegoat and 
we have come to understand that that's a wrong thing that society should do. You know, you, you blame so-and-so for this, you blame so-and-so for that, and so you scapegoat them, and that's unfair, and we shouldn't be doing that. Um, I think you're right on the money when you say that that goat, those two goats or the other animals that were sacrificed, were perceived by the community as doing something incredibly holy. Not to get all dense and funky about it. Do it, it do but, it. But uh, there's a French philosopher of religion called uh, René Girard who, who talked about the way in which there's a kind of sacred violence that is necessary in religion to imbue some victim with all of the bad things. And then when you kill the victim or send the victim away or scapegoat, scapegoat in the conventional sense, that, that victim becomes really holy. Because the, well, look what they've done for the community. They have carried away all of the sins. They've healed the community. So in the Bible's terms, scapegoat um, does not mean the unjustly, the, the unjustly criticized victim. In the Bible's terms, scapegoat means that, that really wonderful animal who has taken away and, uh, all of your illness and healed you. Holy goats. Now that's something I can get behind. Skittles and Cheech are definitely holy. I wish your listeners could, could see, see this. Because these, these really are. They've got a very shiny coat, yep. multiple colors. The one I'm closest to is a little gray. That one over there has a really rich chestnut brown. It looks like a horse. Oh, it's really quite, and, and the different the different shades, the black ridge on the back. These these really are quite lovely, lovely animals. And it's it's cool to be able to touch them. And then we should probably Purell our hands a little bit since. Okay, <laughs> look at this. I actually didn't really know about the goat beard that's happening right here. This Not is like a beautiful the, yeah. white beard. Yeah, he does. I think that's the billy goat, right? This is a billy goat. This all sounds like vaguely familiar from my childhood and maybe Hebrew well, school. You know, you know what happens when, when a man grows a beard just on the chin? What do they call that? A goatee. A goatee. Whoa. Mic drop. Can we drop the mic here? Nope. Too, too, too expensive, these mics. Even Dan Gorodnik, who decided to bring the goats here to help with the invasive species all those years ago, sees something beautiful, even holy, about the work these goats are doing in Riverside Park. They deserve more credit than they're getting right now. Let's put it that way. They are doing an enormous service. We're probably not paying the goats sufficiently, except in, of course, poison ivy. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that they deserve more recognition. They're, they're really unsung heroes of our desire to transform uh, New York City into a greener, more sustainable uh, place to be. And this year, who is your favorite goat? Oh boy. You know, I'm really not supposed to pick favorites, but I will say that um, I, I always had a soft spot for Bella and for Skittles. Many thanks to Tablet Studios' Daron Rousquet for introducing us to the goats. We are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest.
Okay, so Rosh Hashanah is behind us. Yom Kippur is right around the corner and you are feeling the heat. You know that there are not many more days in the days of awe to go out there and take seriously the business of cheshbon nefesh, of really doing this arithmetic of the soul and repenting. You need help. You need the pros. And who is better at this stuff than Maimonides, perhaps the greatest codifier of Jewish law who ever lived? My dear friend and teacher, Rabbi David Bashevkin, of the Take One podcast fame, joins us with a little primer of how Maimonides could help you do teshuva, could help you repent like a champ. Have a listen. Teshuva is at the heart of Jewish faith, Jewish life, and Jewish commitment. It is the possibility and allows for the possibility of correcting and reimagining the very narrative of your life. As your life is unfolding and mistakes or things that are wrong or you veer onto a wrong track, Teshuva allows you to reimagine literally the very essence of your life. It comes from the root word of Lashuv, which means to return. So teshuva, while it's normally translated as repentance, really means to return. And the question is, what are you returning to? In some senses, you are returning to God. In other senses, you are returning to yourself. But what it is really doing is you are returning to a source, that central, essential narrative of who you are vis-a-vis yourself, vis-a-vis God, and vis-a-vis the Jewish community. Rambam. It is an acronym for Rav Moshe ben Maimon, who is also known very often as Maimonides. He was born in 1138, and I think he died in 1204. What made Maimonides unique? What made him unique is that he systematized and collected all of the rulings of the Talmud and collected it all into one book of Jewish law that is an easy-to-navigate collection of all of the laws that emerge from the Talmud. Thousands of messy pages that exist called the Talmud. And it's not organized all that systematically. The Rambam felt that he did such an amazing job of systematizing everything that you could just read his work and it's really like all you need to know to live a healthy religious life. So in the Rambam's Mishnah Torah, there is a section called Hilchos Teshuva, the laws of Teshuva, where he outlines very specifically what are the rules of how we do Teshuva in our lives. In the beginning of the second chapter, he asks, Umahi Teshuva, what is repentance? Husheyazov hachote cheto, you have to leave the sin that you are doing. Veyasiro memachshavto, you have to then conclude and make a commitment that you are not going to do it again. And you also need to regret 
what happened earlier. And then finally, the Rambam writes, V'yoyed alav yodea talumos shalo yashav lazehachet la'olam. And that so to speak, the God, the knower of all the secrets we have in our heart, you should be so committed that you know that you will never go ahead and do this again. So to be clear, there are really three steps. Number one, you need regret. You need to want to be able to do this. The actual process of regret is actually somewhat ambiguous. I know what it's not. You are not supposed to confess necessarily to a rabbi, to a priest, to your friends. The process of teshuva is between you and the creator of the world, you and God. It is a process of realigning yourself. Number two, you need to confess verbally what you did wrong. Not to a priest, not to a rabbi, not to a friend. You need to verbally articulate this and say what you did wrong. Why do you think the Rambam insists that you need to articulate it verbally? Why not just have it in your head? I mean, surely if you believe in a God, that God can read the thoughts in your mind. And I think the idea is, is that what distinguishes us from so many other species and what makes us distinctly human is our ability to articulate our own inner world. Cows don't regret. Dogs don't have this sense of personal angst that they didn't become, you know, fulfill their parents' wishes and dreams. It is a distinctly human process that we have this angst and embarrassment and sense of pain that we don't live up to our internal dreams and aspirations. We don't reach our communal ideals. And we know there's something more that we should be living up to. And the way that we engage in this quintessentially human experience is with the quintessential human means of expression, and that is speech. The third step is a commitment never to do this again. The commitment doesn't mean you're never actually going to do this again. How do I know that? Because we do teshuva every year. What I think it means is that the commitment to never do it again has to be sincere. You have to really want this. Will it happen again? Very likely, because we are human and we do fail and we are imperfect. We're also capable of being sincere. We're also capable of being authentic. And when we do that, when we have that authentic, sincere experience, I don't want this in my life anymore. That is a sincere, articulate expression of that most human desire to want to become ever more perfect. You only confess to God, but that doesn't mean that the teshuva process does not include other people. You need to reconcile specifically with your friends. I'll be very practical. If you get into a fight with somebody, you need to approach that person and you need to verbally articulate what you did wrong to them and say, I am sorry and make a commitment to them that you won't do it again. And being able to affect that reconciliation is one of the holiest things that we have in Jewish life. And in fact, the Talmud and the Rambah makes it quite clear that if you just go to God and hope that he's going to fix and mend and reconcile your interpersonal issues, 
then your teshuva is incomplete and does not work. Don't show up to shul on Yom Kippur and have a trail of broken relationships with friends and family. If you want your teshuva in shul before God to be effective and to be real and to be authentic and sincere, the road towards that process is paved by reconciling with your family and friends. Is there any difference about the teshuva of Yom Kippur? And the answer is a resounding yes. There is a higher and more lofty level of teshuva in which we, that we engage with on Yom Kippur. And that comes from the very description of Yom Kippur in the Torah, which says, Lifnei Hashem titharu. Before God, you will be purified. You will become unified and purified in your relationship with God and your relationship with others. Everybody knows that you can pay somebody back, but the trust is still broken. Everybody knows what it means to fix or send the email that you were supposed to or take care of the errand you were supposed to, but that underlying trust is still eroded, is still broken, still needs mending. Purification means that there is a total sense of unity with you and the people that we wronged whether it's God, whether it's with others, the very trust has been restored. What Yom Kippur is for is for an actual personal transformation. This is the end of side one of this record. Please now, turn it over for the second side. So how does this actually happen on Yom Kippur? I think on Yom Kippur, we embody our idealized selves. We come to shul, we're dressed in white. It's more than just the clothes that they are wearing, obviously. There is something symbolic that we are engaged in. And that is acknowledging the fact that we are capable of living idealized lives. And even for just a moment, when we come together as the Jewish people, and we all walk into shul, no matter where we've been, no matter what we've done, and we say, we want to do this together as a people. We want to show ourselves that our idealized self is apprehensible. That is how we embody our relationship with Tahara and with Teshuva, unique to Yom Kippur. Where we, so to speak, look in the mirror and say, not just we could potentially be better, but we are right now embodying and living better. Even if it's only for a moment, we're able to immerse ourselves in that aspirational life. And that, so to speak, washes over the rest of our history, the rest of our personal narratives, and elevates our entire trajectory to be a little bit better and a little bit holier. And I think this process is not sad. It's not depressing. Yom Kippur is where we return back to our essential idealized self. And there's nothing happier in the entire world. In a lot of shuls, they break out in song at the end of Yom Kippur. It could be hard, it can be arduous, and at moments it could be deeply emotional. But the right word is not sad. It is moving and gratifying and satisfying in the loftiest of ways to engage in our own humanity to engage in self-reflection in the most authentic and honest way is a privilege that is not afforded to anybody. And if you have the opportunity to engage in that way on Yom Kippur, and one of those people who are afforded of the most quintessential human experience, do it with joy, do it with sincerity, 
and do it with all the authenticity of self because it is one of the great privileges of being alive in this world. Rabbi David Beshevkin on the great Maimonides. Today, Stuart Davenport teaches at Pepperdine University in California. But back in the day, he was a high school senior in Alabama fascinated by Southern heritage. He told us about a particular purchase he made just before college and how he ultimately came to see it and the South in a very different light. Here's Pepperdine University history professor Stuart Davenport. So the title of this might be why I took a Confederate flag with me to college and why I took it down a month later. And I should probably say uh, now, uh, I'm nervous telling the story. And I hope that people will take it as a story of change. My name is Stuart Davenport. I was born in uh, 1971. Really lived all my life up until 18 or 19 in uh, Birmingham, Alabama in the pretty much still segregated suburbs. And the most important thing that people know about Birmingham, obviously, is the fire hoses and the dogs. Bull Connor, fire hoses and dogs, 1963, uh, and the church bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in, in Birmingham, Alabama. I was born in 1971, that happened in 1963. If you've ever gone over to a couple's house, and the couple had just had a fight and they're trying to hide it from you, but you can just tell that something is weird and off. That's what it felt like growing up in Birmingham for me. I barely even knew about the fire hoses and the dogs uh, until I went to college. I grew up in this very white world. I did not have a single non-white person in my graduating class in high school. The Confederate flag was flying over the state of Alabama. It was doing that up until 2015. We moved around a lot. Every place was new, and every place was a new suburb and a new house. There was always this world that was just being bulldozed under to create a new suburb that was mysterious to me, that I wanted to learn something about. Rusted farm equipment, dilapidated barns, a simpler way of life, a slower way of life an authentic way of life is what it felt like to me, rather than suburbs and chain restaurants and whatever. That was the attraction that the South had for me, this mystery. It saturates the place. I got turned on to literature, and in particular, I got turned on to Southern literature, William Faulkner. He's writing about the South, about history, about memory. In the summer before my senior year in high school, I went to Harvard for their uh, summer school program. I wanted to go to Harvard because that's where Quentin Compton went. That's the character in Faulkner's Sound and the Fury. This was really my first time out of the South. And I got a lot of attention for being a Southerner. I, I got attention for it. I was you know, a 17-year-old kid looking for attention, looking for an identity, talked about being from the South a lot. And then people responded to that uh, favorably. So I got really even more interested in my Southern identity and Southern literature. 
senior year of high school, I got in Princeton. While I was waiting to go to college, I actually learned how to play the banjo. I am just all in on this white Southerner thing. Like, oh, this will be interesting. People will really give me attention if I walk around playing a banjo. Coming from Alabama with a banjo on my knee, ha ha ha, isn't that interesting? And in addition to all of that, I bought the first Confederate flag that I'd ever bought in my entire life because I thought, oh, hey, well, this will be a nice, convenient way to literally signal that I'm a Southerner. People will see that. They won't have to hear my accent or hear me talk about the banjo or William Faulkner or something. They'll just see that symbol. Oh, you're from the South, blah, blah, blah. And that will be a way for me to get more attention. I was driving back to Birmingham for the last time before we were going to drive off to college. Uh, we pulled over at a Stuckey's. I don't even know if Stuckey's exist anymore. I think they've probably all been replaced by Cracker Barrels. You know, it has that type of food and uh, all this kind of chintzy stuff you can buy in their gift shop. And I was like, oh, there's a Confederate flag. I didn't go on some mission for it. I was like, oh, there it is. And that will kind of complete the outfit. I got my, my grandmother's quilt. I've got my banjo. And here's my Confederate flag. So it kind of rounds out the uniform. So that was the motivation behind it. It really just meant dilapidated barns and kind of rustic simplicity and all that. That's what the South meant to me. When I decorated my dorm, I, I think I just hung it below my window. So before college started, there was a program for incoming first years that was kind of like an outward bound thing where you go camping for a week. You're all strangers. You're all about to start college. Nobody knows anybody. And here's a way to bond by putting on a backpack and walking around the woods and camping together. Uh, one of the people that I met, his first name was Ron. He was from New Jersey and he was Jewish. And we really had a blast on this trip together. We, we really uh, hit it off. One of the ways we connected is he had grown up never having the powdered orange drink tang. <laughs> This is a very important part of the story here. On these camping trips, they bring Tang. This is the first time he'd ever had Tang before and just absolutely could not get enough of it. He said, yeah, I don't even think of it as water anymore. I just think of it as the raw material necessary to make Tang. So just, you know, we laughed about that. We laughed about kind of everything. But then when that trip was over, he came over to my dorm room, saw the Confederate flag and said, whoa, Hey, I, I knew you're from Alabama, but hey, that, that flag means something really different to me uh, than it might to you. He explained what the flag meant to him, that it meant white supremacy, that it meant racist terrorism. For the first time in my life, I saw that flag differently. This isn't just down-home authenticity and simplicity and the good old days or something like that. This flag was hurting him. It made my dorm room uncomfortable for him to come into. My friendship with this person is actually hindered by this symbol that I can most definitely live without. So uh, there it goes. Okay, so here's the rest of the story. The following semester, I took a class with Cornell West. I was admitted to a seminar with Toni Morrison. 
So for an entire semester, I read William Faulkner and Melville sitting one chair away from Toni Morrison. Studying with Cornel West and Toni Morrison and Nell Painter, how can you not be changed by that? If the flag is a symbol of the South, I was now understanding the South very, very differently. In the summer of 1992, I interned for the, the public library in Birmingham, and it was my job to catalog the FBI file on the 16th Street church bombing. I had friends, you know, who were lifeguards or working at Orange Julius or something, and here I was with my head buried in murderous, racist terrorism. Yeah, I'm not so interested in hanging a Confederate flag anymore. So I graduated college in 1994. I kind of stopped investigating race in the South. There's, there are a number of things that I was not ready to learn. I, I kind of put it down for a little while. You can say I kind of put it down for 20 years. And then what, what brought this all roaring back to me was 2015. With a one foot in red America and one foot in blue America, my foot is on these two pontoons. The, the pontoons started moving in different directions around the year 2015. And I could just feel it. With an African-American president, race is going to come up towards the end of his term in office. I was kind of waiting for that, expecting it. Obamacare, the specter of socialism, all of these changes are rattling people. And so what are people reaching for? It's a, hey, I don't like this change, so I'm going to, I'm not just going to be a conservative, I'm going to be a reactionary, uh, and I'm going to fight this. I knew that we were in trouble when they lowered the Confederate flag flying over the state of Alabama. And this one kid said, um, all that matters to me is the Southern blood in my veins. That, you know, it's preposterous, Southern blood in your veins. But as soon as I heard that, it, it took it to another level because now it was about identity, feeling his Southern identity so profoundly that he wants to fight. One of the places where this started was when that kid in Charleston, South Carolina, flashed a Confederate flag on Facebook, and a few days later murdered however many members of that African-American church. And that kid, I don't remember his name, I don't want to remember his name, um, said when he was interviewed on this that he wanted to start a race war. These things that I'd only seen in history books or been talking about in seminars or learned in reading literature are alive again in not a good way. Faulkner's come back into uh, conversation these days with this, his most famous quote of all, the past isn't dead, it isn't even past. These horrors, I thought they were past. And then they came roaring back to life over the flag. So like that kind of gets at the sense of, well, what does the South mean? It, it just is trucks and barns and simplicity and country music and yada yada. Oh, let's not talk about lynching. Let's not talk about systemic racism. Let's not talk about, let's not talk about this horror show that was this place. We'll meet again. We'll meet again. 
change takes place slowly um, and incrementally. Uh, I'm not going to sit around and do nothing about that. I'm, I want to be a part of this conversation in some way. For what it's worth, I think that pretty much all Confederate memorials should come down. I'm very interested in, in reconciliation, uh, racial reconciliation, red-blue reconciliation. And for me, again, the way forward in this and talking to people who are afraid of change, and I kind of understand that, the main thing is you do not have to lose yourself. I, I can't undo my redneckness. Watching SEC football, not knowing what a sommelier was until I was in my 40s, my wife is completely confused by certain Alabama things in me that kind of come flying out every now and then. Two sentences came out of my mouth early in our marriage, and here's one of them. And I said, hey, baby, I just found out that uh, my book is being taught at Harvard. A few weeks later, we were in the bathroom trying to decide what to do with the rest of our day, and we we're just kind of deliberating and talking. And I said, uh, you know, I don't think I am going to shower before I go to Hooters. And she just kind of like, she's putting on her makeup and just kind of paused and was like, oh my God, who have I married? Redneck nerd. That's what I am. I'm a redneck nerd. <laughs> Rednecks aren't being replaced. You're not, you're not losing your culture. You're not losing your identity. I am more kind of comfortable in my redneck identity in California. I don't think redneck is a bad word. It doesn't have to mean racism. What I hope is that people who are kind of holding on to that and racism as a part of that, that they'll, that they'll jettison the racism. It's a long and complicated process that I'm just reducing to a few words here. But I, I think that the two actually can be decoupled. There is a kind of elitism and snobbery that you see in shows like 30 Rock or whatever, you know, kind of putting down Red America. I don't think that that has helped. I don't think that that kind of cultural elitism has helped. Believe me, if you take a bunch of rednecks and take the racism out of them, it's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to have a lot of fun. One thing that I would say positive from Southern culture um, is Leonard Skinner. <laughs> so we know the song Sweet Home Alabama. We know the song Freebird. But there's this other song that Leonard Skinner is famous for called Simple Man. I love it. It's a haunting, honestly beautiful song. What I would say, in a way, to my fellow rednecks is let other people be simple. Let them be themselves. You know, let Mexican families be simple and be themselves. Let, let Asian families be themselves. Let Black families be themselves. Live and let live and let people simply be simple. You can still be yourself in this country and let other people from wherever they're from and whatever their beliefs and whatever they look like be themselves as well. That's what I love about America. You know, I don't think I am going to shower before I go to Hooters. Stuart Davenport, a life in letters. <laughs> I want that to be my, my kind of literary legacy. <laughs> Longtime listeners, longtime members of the J. Crew will know that we have a running joke 
on this podcast that the official holiday of the podcast is Tsom Gedalia, the Feast of Gedalia. And after all these years of joking about it, I'm still not entirely sure that I know what it is. But I do know that it falls between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And as my dear friend and colleague, Liel Leibowitz, tells us this year, it actually has a very, very important message about what happens when we take disagreements too far. So Liel, tell us more. What exactly is the message of Tsom Gedalia? Well, I think before we uh, discuss what the message of Tsom Gedalia is, we need to ask a more profound question. So what is Tsom Gedalia? Which I think still comes as a surprise, even to uh, longtime listeners of, of this Tsom Gedalia-loving podcast. Very briefly, uh, after the destruction of the first temple, Jews were still in Israel before the exile to Babylonia. They had some measure of autonomy. They were ruled over by a governor named... Gedalia? Gedalia. His Gedalia. name was Gedalia. <laughs> and, and by all accounts, he was a perfectly fine administrator, uh, kind of, you know, beloved mayor, if you will. However, the king of Ammon, a neighboring no longer with us empire, uh, was really hostile and sort of, you know, not happy with the fact that there were Jews. And obviously he understood something very profound about Jews because he knew that the best way to get at the Jews is to get Jews to be bad at other Jews. And so he whispered in the ear of a Jew named Ishmael ben Netanyah. It's unimprovable names these guys had. And basically convinced him that uh, Gedalia was a bad person and a traitor to the Jews because he collaborated somehow with the Babylonians as if he had a choice. Long story short, Ishmael ben Netanyah assassinated Gedalia, which ended Jewish autonomy in the land of Israel and is still remembered all these years later as this kind of shocking warning about what happens to us when we let our perfectly legitimate and important disagreements sort of skid into hatred and skid into violence. And I think that today, this message is possibly more urgent than it could ever be. And I, I say this particularly myself, being very frequently engaged in polemic writing and saying things of a political nature of, shall we say, distinctly strong opinions and being involved too often in quarrels with other Jews. And look, I stand by everything that I say and write. I think that the Jewish way of discourse encourages us particularly and precisely to engage in these arguments and these quarrels, uh, as we say, my arguments for the sake of heaven, because that's how we understand each other and, and the world and our role in it. But I think there's a very fine line between having a fierce disagreement about things that matter and coming to see people on the other side as somehow inherently, essentially flawed or bad or ill-meaning. So here's what I wanted to do this year. I wanted to find the one person with whom I disagreed most vehemently on pretty much every political issue out there. And I wanted to stop and acknowledge that that person could very well be incredible and do a lot of good things and do a lot of good things for the Jewish community. And I didn't have to look very far. In fact, I knew exactly who I wanted to reach out to. I wanted to reach out to Rabbi Rachel Timoner of Congregation Beth Elohim in Brooklyn, who is someone with whom I've had very public disagreements on the pages of publications and on the airwaves. Yet, is someone who I know from her congregants is a deeply committed, dedicated, wonderful leader of her community and someone who does holy work for the Jewish people. And I wanted to reach out to her and tell her that, which I think is the true spirit of Tsum Gedalia. Here's our conversation. 
Hello, Rabbi Timoner. Hi, Leo. So listen, um, you and I have had our disagreements, uh, sometimes privately, sometimes publicly. It is no secret that I disagree with your stand on pretty much everything from bail reform to gun <laughs> control to pretty much every other major political disagreement that I could think of. But here's the thing. I have spoken to many of your congregants and they all say the exact same thing. They all say that you are an incredible shepherd to this flock, to, to use a decidedly non-Jewish bit of imagery, uh, <laughs> that you are deeply committed and, and deeply passionate uh, and take your role uh, as, a, as a Jewish leader very seriously. And I want it uh, in, in the spirit uh, of everyone's favorite holiday, Tzom Gedalia, uh, <laughs> to do two things. First of all, to say thank you, because I know that leadership isn't easy, and I know that, this, that these disagreements uh, should never blind us to the fact that there are people out there doing incredible work, and that work has to be acknowledged. And second of all, as a, as a minor token uh, of gratitude, uh, to offer that the uh, copious amounts I would have spent otherwise on lunches, dinners, and martinis that I will be saving on this day of fast, I would like in tribute to offer to your show, Congregation Beth Elohim. That is incredibly generous and thoughtful. And I have to tell you, I'm moved by this call and this and what you're doing. We have disagreed several times, and, and you know, and I've I've criticized you directly. I've told you some critiques that I have about things that you've done and positions you've taken. And I think that what you're doing and the way that you're bringing our attention to Tzom Gedalia and to our divisions in our community is so important and is really kind of a challenge to all of us to rise and meet you there. And I'm just really touched that you thought of me, that you are making this gesture and that you are using this moment to teach us all to kind of reach across our divisions and find each other again. It's really one of the most hopeful ways we could imagine going into this new year. So thank you. And if nothing else, it sure beats murder. <laughs> it sure does. On that, I think we could all agree. Rabbi Timoner, thank you so much, truly, for everything you do. Thank you. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, along with Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. The team also includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Sara Fredman, Ader Daron Rusquet, and Sam Hacker. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and or Facebook. Donate to our fundraiser at tabletm.ag slash mysterybox. That's tabletm.ag slash mysterybox. And guys, you could still be entered for the mystery box created and curated by your favorite host, and you pick which host you want to sign up for a mystery box from. You can get unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unorthoshirt. Our episode art is by Esther Wardiger. Theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. I say it from time to time, but the best wedding band I ever saw was Golem. They're not a wedding band per se, but I had a friend, my friend Aaron and Elaine hired Golem to play their wedding and it was insane. Our mailbox name is by Steve Barton. Send us snail mail at PO Box 20079, New York, New York, 10001. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Moshe Schmolken at Adath Israel Congregation in Cincy, Ohio. And we come to you from the Tablet Studios Tabernacle, entering year 5783 since creation. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.